1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, keeping our eyes, or keep your eyes on the prize. Let's read these verses. Do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the price. So after referring to soldiers and farmers earlier in this chapter, Paul now refers to athletes, their training and their accomplishments. And so just like Jesus did, Paul is using very familiar analogies, very familiar things to the people, things that the people would be very familiar with. He's using those analogies to help the Corinthians understand important truths. And in this case, he is referring to the kind of training and competition that would have been part of the Olympic Games held in Olympia, Greece. That would have been about 125 miles away from, from Corinth itself. But the ancient Olympic Games, the modern Olympic Games started much later, right, or revived much later. But the ancient Olympic Games that were taking place in Olympia, Greece, that was true for centuries before even the time of Paul. And so now he's referring to those games, or he's referring to this, that activity. And he's also referring to the Isthmian great games that were held on the isthmus of Corinth itself. So there were a very similar set of games, similar to the Olympic games that were being held in Corinth itself. So the Corinthians would have been very familiar with this. They would have known what was going on. It would have been a big deal, right? I mean, you know, just, just think of what happens today when the Olympics takes place. Everybody knows that it's happening and maybe you're not watching it, but you know, there's, it, it's just a big event as such. And so these games that would have taken place at this time affecting the city of Corinth, people would have been familiar with it. They would have known what the athletes are doing. They would have seen how they're preparing. And maybe they're even witnessing the events themselves. They're watching these athletes compete and go through this and, and so on. And so in these games, athletes prepared extensively. They competed fiercely and ultimately, when they would win, they won a, a crown of pine or laurel leaves, just a wreath of sorts that would be placed on their head. That's it. No gold medals, no other compensation, no recognition of who finished second or third. Just whoever won, they would win and they would get a little wreath placed on their head. Now, the games were done in honor of the gods and Zeus and all these kinds of things. But this was what would happen. And so only one winner who walked away with a crown that would dry out and wither very quickly. 
a crown that did not last. Unlike the Olympic or Isthmian Games, where there was only one winner for any event, as believers in Christ, those of us who are actively engaged in the spiritual race of life, we are not competing with each other. We're not trying to beat the other person. We're not trying to win because there's only one winner. Similar to those ancient athletes, we are running with preparation and purpose. But unlike those athletes, we run, all of us run, so that all of us receive a crown. Unlike the Olympic or Isthmian athletes' crowns, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4 tells us that when Jesus returns, we will receive an unfading crown of glory. James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love it. And when Paul knew that he was coming to the end of his life, to the end of his days, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, henceforth, he says, I, you know, henceforth, I've done all these things, but henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing, crown of glory, crown of righteousness, crown of life given to us by the Lord. Oh, the Lord is not looking for just that one winner. And so when Paul makes this analogy or when he makes this statement, he's not saying Christianity in terms of how we are receiving from the Lord is somehow exclusive or somehow discriminatory. No. He says, you are in this life, this race of life, and you are pursuing this thing, and the Lord will bless. The Lord will give you these crowns. The Lord will bless you personally, even though there are millions of others that are running this race. Right? Now, I don't know what that crown will look like. There were some questions raised about this even recently. I don't know how big it will be. I don't know what it's made of, really. I mean, it talks about all these crowns, and there are all these you know, imagery in the Bible of the crown that, with jewels in it. And I don't know what kind of jewels it'll have. I don't know, what, you know how exactly it will look like and everything else, but I do know. I do know, however, that whatever the Lord gives us, whatever this crown of glory will be, it will reflect his glory. I do know that whatever the Lord gives us, it won't fade or perish. I do know that whatever the Lord gives us, it will not be the focus. He will be the focus. I do know that when we get to heaven and when we get, receive these rewards, we won't be saying to the other person, let me see your crown. Oh, my crown's much bigger. We'll be saying, oh, I don't even care about these crowns because I have the Lord. And then we'll come back to that point. I want to come back to that, that truth. But the point is that we should now and will be then entirely focused on the Lord, not on the reward. 
not on the crowns. But that brings us to two important points for our discipleship and application. The first point regarding our athlete-like preparation is that we have to know what it takes. We have to know what it takes. The Bible speaks about counting the cost. The Bible speaks about being prepared before you start building the tower. The Bible speaks about knowing the seasons before you plant and sow and do things. The Bible speaks about this preparation that is necessary. And here Paul is using the imagery of the athlete to say, you've got to know what it takes. As an athlete who is preparing for these kinds of events, they know their capabilities. They know what areas they're lacking in. Maybe they're lacking in stamina. Maybe they're lacking in strength. Maybe there's something else. Maybe they have to learn how to use some particular tool or something else, some, you know, the javelin or whatever. They have to learn something. They have to gain that. They know what they're lacking in. And so they receive coaching and instruction. They seek to improve their skills and build up the areas that they are weak in. And they are counting the cost of the rigorous training and preparation that they have to go through. They are counting the cost of the toll that this will take on their physical bodies, their minds, and their spirits. And they're doing this all for a perishable crown. But they are willing to go through all of that. They are willing to, to just endure all that hardship for the sake of this pursuit, for the sake of this goal that they have. They, but even before getting to the goal itself, they are counting the cost and saying, I'm going to do it. It's worth it. I'm going to go after this. So they make sacrifices of their time, of their effort, their whatever, their resources. They're making severe sacrifices in some cases. They are disciplined. They will pursue this without you know, sort of breaking, right? We talk about dieting and then we say cheat days. You know, we'll, we'll have a cheat day and we'll do this and we'll do that. Break the diet on that day. Athletes can't afford to do that, right? They have to stay disciplined. They have to keep on it. They have to stay focused on what they are doing and keep working at it. And so they make these kinds of sacrifices. Now, Paul here, he says he buffets his body. Uh, I, I, don't take that word literally. He's not talking about inflicting some self-harm. He's not talking about self-flagellation. This was something that started to come up with the monks and others where they would, they would punish themselves and say, oh, you know, I buffet my body or I'm doing these things to keep my body in check. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, he's, he's using that term figuratively He's saying, I do whatever's necessary to run the race that is set before me and to run the race well. So, I, again, as I've said in previous uh, you know, messages, I'm not telling you, you better get up at 5 in the morning, you better run 3 miles, you better eat only these kinds of foods. If you want to be a member of New Life Fellowship Church, you better be having six-pack abs. I, I, you know, and that's not the statement. right? That's not the statement at all. The point here is that you would say, what do I need to do personally? What do I need to do to prepare to be running this race well? Now, you may, you may need to pay attention to some physical things. 
If the Lord has purpose for you to run this race for 70, 80, maybe more years of your life, and you don't pay attention to your body, you don't pay attention to what you eat, you don't do the right things in terms of taking care of your spirit, soul, and body, you may short circuit, you may affect the plan that the Lord has for you. You may do something in a way that has actually a detrimental effect on your body and everything else. Right? So you do have to pay attention to that. You do have to say, Lord God, is there something in terms of how I'm conducting myself that needs to be different? How do I prepare? How do I do this? But the main point that I want to make to you is that you would take that step of asking the Lord. That you would wait on the Lord. That you will say, what do I need? So that athlete who goes to the trainer or the instructor, the coach, and says, oh, I'm weak in this area, I need some help with that. That we would say to the Lord, I'm weak in this area, I need some help with this. And he's not just simply our instructor and our coach, he's the one who can equip and empower and give the strength from within to actually do the discipline that he says, this is what's necessary for you. If you relied on your own strength, if you said, oh, I'm going to do it, I'm, you know, my willpower, my ability... You'll do it for a little bit. You'll do it you know, in some ways, but you'll be inconsistent. And you cannot persevere. The reason we can persevere in this race of life is not because we are strong. It's because our Lord is strong. It's because he has done great things and that he will do great things and because he's faithful for us. That's why we can persevere in this race. So we come to him and we say, Lord God, do this work in me. So this is a good opportunity this morning for, for us to be reminded. You know, I've spoken about this in the past. There are at least about seven discipleship maturities that we need to be rigorous about, that we need to be thinking about, that we need to be applying. And the first one has to do with our biblical maturity. Are we learning and applying the word of God in all areas of our life? Are we learning the Bible? Or is the Bible just something we hear about, think about, you know, or occasionally have some sort of, you know, sort of effect by it or through it, you know. Is the Bible important? Are we learning and applying the Word of God? So biblical maturity. The second is terms of personal or physical maturity, living disciplined, diligent, self-denying holy lives where we're making a commitment daily to crucify sinful passions and desires. The third area is communication. Are we preparing and practicing how we can articulate the gospel message to somebody else? How we can describe our relationship with God and defend the faith? The Bible says, be prepared in season, out of season, to answer anybody who asks you a question, who queries you about the reason for your hope. Why do you have hope in God? Why do you think that this is important? You should practice and prepare to be able to respond to that. Third, fourth area, financial maturity, that we would be consistent stewards of all the resources that the Lord has given into our hand that belong to him. Fifth area, that there would be character and ethical maturity, that there would be integrity, responsibility, that we would be able to make responsible decisions. 
not self-serving decisions, not, not just frivolous things, not whimsical things, but rather to say, what is the impact of this decision, this choice that I'm making, and how do I do this in the Lord? That we would pay attention to that area of our lives, that we would act ethically, show mercy, love justice, and be willing to demonstrate courage under fire. In the sixth area, that we would be relationally and socially mature, that we would say, Lord God, help me to build, to establish, and to build God-glorifying relationships with my family, with my friends, with my colleagues. I want to have a proper relational and social interaction with people. This is the same point that I was making, this, or this is related to the point that I was making last week. We want to be winsome to win some. Right? We want to be winsome people. We want to be engaging. We want to be appealing. If they see you, they should not be saying, what a grumpy old man. They should be saying, oh, I, you know, that, this is a great person to be with. Or, great, or a grumpy old woman. I, uh, I, you know, I, you know, I, I, we, you know we, we've got to be people who the, who the world looks at and says, oh, I, I want to be with this person. Right? We want to be winsome people. We want to have relational and social maturity. And then in that, in that list of those seven discipleship maturities, the seventh one, we want to take on leadership or ecclesiastical uh, responsibility. We wouldn't just be participating. We would seek to serve and to lead and to be involved in the church in that way in a mature and discipleship-oriented way. And accompanying these seven spiritual maturities are seven spiritual disciplines. Meaning in order to go after this, we would be disciplined. So in that first area, we would be regularly reading and studying the word of God so as to become biblically mature. You can't say, oh, I want to be biblically mature and then never read the Bible, right? That doesn't work. There has to be a discipline. There has to be some deliberate action to say, I'm going to read the Bible. Maybe it's only a verse a day. Maybe it's five verses a day. Maybe it's five chapters a day. I'm not prescribing that to you. I'm saying to you, start to get into the discipline of learning the Word of God. In terms of our personal and physical maturity, one of those disciplines that we would have is to fast, is to pray with fasting. Maybe you do it once a month when we have our fasting prayer meeting on the first Saturday of the month. Or maybe you do it more frequently. Maybe you do it for extended periods of time, whatever it may be. The Bible speaks about fasting as a discipline, as a way to, to deny self, as a way to, to discipline the body, as a way to say, I'm not driven by my appetites, both for food and for other things but I rather will deny myself in order to serve the Lord. So we are disciplined in, or we practice a discipline of fasting. When it comes to the next area of maturity in terms of communication, our communication with others is facilitated by our communication with God. And so we discipline ourselves in terms of prayer and meditation, praying to God regularly, meditating on his word, letting our minds be filled with the word of God and the things of God so that what comes out of us when we communicate, what comes out of the, the mouth is what's the abundance of the heart. It's what overflows from the heart. And so we communicate because we are in prayer and meditation regularly as a discipline. When it comes to financial stewardship, that we would have a discipline of giving. Do you give once a year or do you give every week? Do you give every day? I mean, uh, wh what is your discipline of giving? 
Is that a muscle that you're building? Do you say, oh, I give. I give regularly. I listen to the Lord to know what more to give. I, I do this as a discipline that helps me to be thinking about the stewardship of these resources and how that would mature in my life. And then next, as we talk about how we would you know, relate to the Lord himself and, and worship him, we have talked about it here in the, in, you know, on Sunday mornings, we talk about it in other opportunities, but we want to say, Lord God, I want to have a discipline of worshiping you regularly, privately, personally, and corporately, that we would join with brothers and sisters and worship the Lord, that we would call on the name of the Lord and we would say, I worship you, Lord, in spirit and in truth. That would be a discipline. That would be something that takes effort. You have to get up in the morning and get to the church. You have to make an effort to do those things regularly. You have to join into the prayer meeting or something else. You have to learn some new skill, how to get on Zoom or do something else. Why? Because you're saying, I want to be disciplined about this communication, this worship, this fellowship, I want to do this in a way that would regularly honor the Lord. And then, as we talk about service and how we would, you know, reach out to those in need, that we would build a discipline of serving others, of serving those in need, both within the church and outside the church, that we would glorify God in these ways. And in that final area of maturity, we would build a discipline of submission. In order to be a leader, you first must be a follower. You must understand what it means to yield, to submit. When the centurion came to Jesus, he said, you don't even have to come to my house to have my servant healed. You just speak a word. Because I am also a man under authority. I know what it means to submit and to yield. So I know that if you just speak a word, it'll take place. That's a discipline that we have to build. Because I'll tell you without any hesitation, right from when you're a very young child through all your days, one of the most difficult things to do is to yield, is to submit, is to say, you go first, is to listen to somebody else, your spouse, your children, your whoever, and to say, yes, I yield. Oh, that's tough. Because our every instinct is to say, huh? Oh. Now, who are you to tell me this? Yeah? I mean, that's our, that's our reaction. But the Bible says, build this discipline because every one of those opportunities that are coming up, every one of those fights that you're having at home, it's an opportunity to yield, to submit. I'm speaking to myself. So, uh, so here, the Bible is very clear. He says, look, no, 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 what it takes to be an athlete in this way, to prepare in this way, to be ready to be led of the Lord in this way, to endure in the race in this way. And then the second important point in terms of emulating these athletes is that we have to be people who know the goal. We have to know what it is that we're pursuing. Now, you know, you can, you can be involved in some activity just for the sake of doing that activity, right? And at the end of it, you say, hey, I had a good time. But what came of it? Well, nothing much. No. The Bible is very clear. Know the goal. What is the purpose that you're trying to fulfill? What is the objective? You know, the, 
I've been reading some articles about this too, but one of the big things that, it, that I was reading about was that most people in the world get depressed or, or have just, they, they lose you know, any kind of joy in life and so on when they don't have a goal. They don't have a purpose. They don't have anything to live for. It's, it's, there's nothing. So then you know, people retire, and then they don't know what to do in retirement, and then they want to go back and do something else. Or they, why? Because they don't know what their purpose is. They have no idea. They're like, ah, I don't know what I should do. But the Bible is clear that as a child of God, there is a purpose for your life. God has a plan for your life. God has a call on your life. That doesn't end when you're 65. That doesn't end when you're you know, out of your parents' you know, care and you know, control and I can go do whatever I want. The plan of God is for all of our life. Doesn't matter, 85, 95, you know, five, you know. 70, it doesn't matter, right? That we would say, you know, the, yeah. You know, that we have to say, Lord God, Lord God, what is the plan that you have for me? What is the purpose that you have for me? As athletes, athletes know what they're preparing for. And those ancient games, they were preparing to be recognized in front of that crowd by whoever it was, the emperor or whoever it may be, just to receive that little wreath, that little perishable crown. And they said, oh, I'm going to pursue that. I'm going to win. I'm going to do this. As athletes, they knew what the rules of the race were. They knew that if, if they didn't compete according to those rules, they would be disqualified. They knew that their performance would be evaluated according to those conditions. And they knew what the price was. They knew. And so they competed in that way. Paul says, I don't run aimlessly. I don't just run. You know, I was about to make a comment about jogging. You know, but most joggers have a purpose. They're, they're not just running aimlessly. Um, but, you know, he, Paul says, uh, I don't just run aimlessly. You know, I don't, I'm not just shadow boxing. He says, I know. I know how to race. I know what this means. I know how to pursue this. I'm going after this with purpose. I know the call of God on my life. I'm going to do this diligently all my days because I know where I'm going. And when, and when he speaks of being disqualified, like I just mentioned, he's not speaking of losing his salvation. I'll, I'll, he's referring to the consequences of being ill-prepared or breaking the rules or setting a bad example. He's saying, when when you, if you do those things, there's a consequence to that. So, and we can address this uh, a little bit more on Wednesday during the sermon discussion. But my point is that Paul is very clear. Paul is very fixed. Paul is very, very, you know, sort of, uh, he, there's no confusion in his mind about what he's going after. What is the purpose for this race of mine? You know, what is the purpose of my life? What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? He's, he's, not, he's not confused about any of that. He says, I, I, I have a very clear purpose of God. I know what I need to do. I will preach Christ and I'll preach him crucified. I have been sent by the Lord to do this. When he speaks to the people, he says, I, this next step, I'm going to go over here. And then, you know, after that, I'm going to do this. And he 
he is pursuing his purpose with diligence. And he says, that's what we need to do. In all that Paul is focused on in this race of life, there's that clear understanding and expectation of the end goal, that price, that crown of glory, crown of righteousness, crown of life that the Lord has for us. And I want to point out to you that there's an even more important reward that awaits every child of God. I've already alluded to it, so this should not be a surprise. But the fact is that the greatest reward, the greatest crown, the greatest glory, the greatest anything we can receive is the fact that we would be united with the Lord himself. You know, in Genesis, as we read the story of Abraham, fascinating story, just all the ways in which God leads him, brings him out, does all these things. And through Genesis 14, there are all these stories in there of what has happened with Lot and the kings and battles and everything else. And Abraham, by this point, is amassing wealth and people and resources, and he's able to defeat kings. And I mean, he's doing all sorts of stuff. So Genesis 14, all through that. Genesis 15 opens with this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield your very great reward. Abram didn't even have children at that time. Isaac wasn't born. Ishmael wasn't born. No children. God had made all these promises to him. God had said, your your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore and like the stars in the sky. God was saying, I'm going to lead you into the promised land. I'm going to do all these things for you. None of it had happened yet. I mean, none of those specific promises had been fulfilled yet. But God, in the midst of all of that, says, don't think that when you start seeing those things happen, that's your reward. What do we do when we pursue the things of God or the plan of God or run this race of life? God says, hey, I'm going I'm to give you this job or I'm going to bring you into this or I'll heal you or whatever. And we think those are the rewards, right? And so we go for a period of time where we get all those things and we say, ah, oh, Look at that. God is good. And then we go for a period of time where none of those things are happening and answers don't seem to be coming and maybe there's some financial difficulty or whatever, or health, whatever, something else. And we say, oh, but you know what? As we sang even in the beginning, whether it's in the good or in the bad, do you have Jesus? Because he is your greatest reward. He is the one that you should be saying, it doesn't matter what else happens. It doesn't matter if I'm in shipwrecks. It doesn't matter if I have lack. It doesn't matter if this or that or whatever. I have Christ. And he is all that I need. He is all sufficient. He is everything to me. So I don't see this answer to prayer. Huh? no problem. I still have my greatest reward. I see an answer to prayer. Huh? no problem. I still have my greatest reward. I'm not measuring the Lord's goodness to me by the things of this world and by my happiness. I'm going to measure the things that the Lord has promised to me by saying, am I in an intimate relationship with the Lord himself? Do I have the Lord as my greatest reward? It was what God said to Abraham. It's what God said to Moses. I am with you. I am with you. Don't worry about what you will say to Pharaoh. I am with you. 
It's what he said to the children of Israel. It's what he said to the people all through the scriptures and in our lives today. He doesn't say, I'll give you all these things. Those things will happen. Those things will come and go. But he says, I am with you. I am your greatest reward. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 says this. Therefore, all the things that were mentioned in Hebrews 11 about the people of faith that strived and did things and went after things and some were killed and some died and you know whatever things martyred for the faith and so on. All of them were steadfast in the Lord. All of them held on to the Lord. And in Hebrews 12 verses 1 to 3 it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer or author and the perfecter or finisher of our faith. For the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We're in this race. We're called to compete, not, not against each other, but called to run as one seeking to get that price. We will run with diligence and perseverance, but I'll tell you something, it gets tough. There will be days when you don't want to run. There will be days when you get up and you say, I can't run, my, my everything is hurting. I can't, I, can't, I just can't, Lord, I, I can't do this. There will be days when you say, I'm, I'm all alone, I'm running this race, and I mean, there's just nobody. Nobody's there to encourage me. Nobody's there to stand with me. Nobody's there running alongside. You know, there'll be days when you get up and you say, oh, God, I just ran up one hill and there's another hill, right? You know, there'll be days when you stumble and you fall and you'll skin your knees or something worse, pop your shoulder, do something. Something will happen and you'll say, oh, God, I just can't do this. I can't do this. But you know what Paul says, or what the word says? We would look to Jesus. We would look to Jesus. We would look to him and we say, oh God, you're the one that caused me to start this race. You're the one that says that you will finish this race. You're the one that will perfect me through this journey of life and get me to the end point. It's not because of me. It's not because I'm good. It's not because I sin less. Oh, but you're the one that's going to get me there. So for every step of this process, every step of this race that gets me to that end point, you are the one that will do it for me. Oh, I look to you, Jesus. I don't look to my circumstances. I don't look at the doctor's reports. I go, I get the doctor's reports, fine. But I'm not looking to that. I'm not looking to the resources I have in my hand, whether there are many or there are few. I'm not looking at all the circumstances. I'm looking at you, Jesus. I'm looking to you, the author and the finisher of my faith. 
I'm looking to you as you are my Lord. I'm looking to you because when it gets tough, oh Lord, I need you to carry me, to hold me, to embrace me, to love me, to, oh, I, I just need you. I can't do anything else. Is that our cry? When in, when in desperation, when times of crisis come, where do you turn? Do you say, oh, 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 I better do this. I better get that. Or do you say, oh, God, I look to you. When Peter started to sink, because he looked at the winds and the waves, he turned to Jesus and he cried out. He was a swimmer. He could have tried to go back to the boat. You know, he wasn't too far from the boat. But he said, oh, Lord, help me. Oh, Lord, help me. And it says immediately, Jesus reached out and grabbed him. What is it that you're in need of this morning? What is it that you would say, Lord God, oh, this race is tough. This race is tough. I don't know how much longer I can keep doing this. And maybe I'm at the end of my days. Maybe I just need to just stop running. Right? Because I think I'm done. I think I'm retired. But no. The Lord says, you've got to keep going. Keep running. Keep running with endurance and perseverance. Keep running to encourage others who are there. Because guess what? That person next to you may be experiencing the very same thing. And they're down. And you need to be able to say to them, my brother, my sister, keep going. Keep going. I stumbled like this uh, just, a, just, a little, just a mile down. You know, I, I had the same problem take place in my life. Let me encourage you. Don't give up. Don't give up. Just look to Jesus. Look at him. Look at him. Look at him. Look to Jesus. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's keep running so that we will not grow weary, so that we will not lose heart. In all that the word tells us, we respond and apply by looking to Jesus. There is nothing else. There's nothing else. We can't come up with some other method. We have to say, oh God, we respond and apply this word that we are hearing by looking to Jesus. No matter what happens. No matter what happens. The title of this message, Keep Your Eyes on the Price, is actually, comes, I mean, this is a phrase that has been used in many different ways, and it's an old phrase as such. But that title is also a song that was used in the civil rights movement. Some of you may even have heard it, right? And it was a song that was to inspire people to say, oh, no matter what the circumstances, no matter how you're being treated, no matter what's going on, keep your eyes on the price. Hold on. Hold on. Keep your eyes on the price. The price is not the crown, the rewards, or anything else. The price is the Lord Jesus himself. Keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes fixed on him. If all of us have our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus, we will make progress together. When our eyes are on each other or on the world or something else, we will all stumble and go. We will all be distracted. We will go in different directions. We will run into each other. We will have conflict. But when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, when the path before us is clear that the Holy Spirit says, this is the way, walk in it, oh, we will make progress together. We will grow as a church. We will see the work of God manifest. We will see the power of God in our midst. We will see people coming to the Lord himself and saying, 
I want to know this Jesus. I want to know this Jesus. So let's do that. Let's pursue him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, Lord, you have called us in such a beautiful, wonderful way. Lord, you have called us, Lord, not to be distracted by anything of this world, but just like that athlete would, to be single-mindedly focused, to, Lord, discipline ourselves and to say, I will prepare and I will then persevere in running this race that is set before me. Help us, Lord God. Grant us grace to do this now and to do it with strength. Not our strength, but the strength of the Lord himself, the power of the Holy Spirit coursing through us, helping us to get that next step, causing us to run with endurance, to persevere. Lord God, do this work in us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, to keep our eyes fixed on the price, the greatest price, the only price that matters, the only reward that is any reward at all, you yourself, the Lord Jesus. We want you, Lord. We need you. We thank you. We commit ourselves to look to Jesus in everything. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.